We'll continue our examination of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, beginning at verse 9 and reading on through verse 15. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 9 to 15. Then we'll turn in the New Testament to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, and read verses 33 to 36. We'll begin then with Ecclesiastes 3, beginning at verse 9. By the Spirit of God, Solomon asks, What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is, has been already. And that which will be, has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. And Paul, writing to the Romans, at the end of a just an amazing couple of chapters on the wisdom and foreknowledge of God, comments, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are struck speechless when we read your scripture and discover what a great God you are. Words cannot express it, the words of men nor the words of angels. But we pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit would open our eyes, that we might be able, by grace, to take a little more in to ourselves, a little more of who you are and the great glory that radiates from you. Change us, we pray. Work in us that which you will. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
the main point, the main object of this very unusual book of Ecclesiastes is to pose that timeless question, what's the point? Why should I care how I live? Why should I even care whether I live or die? In the final analysis, in the big scheme of things, if there is such a thing as a big scheme of things, does my life have any lasting significance? Do I have any significance at all in the universe? Because I look around, I see this recurring life cycle of natural processes going on around me, the sun rising and setting, all the rivers running to the sea, and the sea is not full, and so on. I see these things going on around me, and I'm driven to the question, what's this life all about? Anyway, what's this all about? So the book addresses a very basic human need. The need for a compelling sense of purpose. purpose. It is so basic a question, in fact, that you might be inclined to ask how this book of Ecclesiastes ever found a place in the Old Testament canon. After all, didn't the highly privileged nation of Israel, above all nations, have these fundamental issues of life's purpose pretty well nailed down by the time of Solomon? Didn't they understand this long before him? Well, they should have, and they could have. But let's look at it this way. Today, we have had God's scriptures for 3,000 years longer than even Solomon did. And over the course of those intervening 3,000 years, from Solomon to now, God's made up whatever was lacking at the time in the canon of Scripture. In fact, he's made everything perfectly clear. He's made everything perfectly explicit for us in these last days through the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, a man much greater than Solomon. We now know that all the Scriptures speak of him. And we know that because he told us so. By the light of the gospel, it's clear now what this life's all about. Here it is in the scriptures. But have those intervening 3,000 years actually helped humanity at all? I mean, humanity at large. Does humanity at large understand the world and our place in it any better than they did? With all the advantages that we now have over the Old Testament believer, do we of the 21st century have these answers all figured out regarding life and its purpose? 
Let me speak candidly for a moment as a baby boomer, as an older man. And forgive me, I don't want to offend anybody, but dear ones, there are days when those of my generation are tempted to think that this present generation may actually be a full order of magnitude more stupid than even we were. And that's saying quite a bit. At least in such things as biblical literacy and the scientific method and critical thinking, that I, a child of the 1960s, should live to see a day when educated people can't distinguish between, for instance, a work day and the Lord's Day, or maybe even more amazing, can't distinguish between a man and a woman, can't distinguish between military victory and abject surrender, can't distinguish between black and white, right and wrong. These are rather easy things. Empirically verifiable things, many of them. The question of human purpose and our place in the big scheme of things today seems to be more pressing and yet more ambiguous than ever. And it's not because the answers aren't available to us. They are. It's because we're not applying ourselves to the evidence that is available. For all our privileges at this late point in history, 3,000 years after Solomon, 2,000 years after Christ, humanity, apart from God's illuminating grace, humanity still doesn't seem to know what it's doing. But the truth be told, the question of our purpose in life was answered at the very beginning. When according to Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Beloved, here we have the clear, concise, biblical purpose statement for humanity. And you can't miss it, can you? If you're reading it, you can't miss it. It stands out. This is what you're to do. So tell your children, parents, tell your children, this in a practical sense is what your life is all about. It's about multiplication within families and godly dominion over the earth for the glory of God. That's what we're about. So whatever it is you give your time and attention to in your growing up years and on into adulthood, whatever you give your time and attention to, let it support one or both of those grand 
human objectives. But of course, not only are the hearts of unregenerate men desperately wicked, their minds are also desperately forgetful. Apart from that illuminating grace that I just mentioned, we retain what God so freely gives us. We retain it no better than a sieve retains the water that's poured through it. Let's compare this clear, concise, biblical purpose statement for humanity that I just read from Genesis chapter 1. Let's compare that with the secular worldview that's currently at work in the world driving human culture to the various absurdities that you see played out every day in the news. I want us to compare that deeply ingrained, culturally comprehensive falsehood that's being pushed on us, compare that with the truth that's so clearly expressed here in the scriptures. Principally, I want to compare their respective views of history. History. And whether and how history is governed and to what end it's governed. So what is your place in history? Well, if history is what the average man on the street seems to think it is, that it's just the random occurrence of chance events, or maybe it's an unceasing struggle for mastery over others, or age upon age directed by nothing more wise than the fickle finger of fate, or whatever else lost men may say it is, if their opinions about history are true, then you and I really don't have much of a place in it, do we? According to those views, any one of us is happens to be, randomly, happens to be, here today, gone tomorrow. Forgotten and erased the day after that. Our lives, according to this atheistic construct of human history, our lives mean nothing. Our children's lives mean nothing. History has no value for our moral education, and the memorial statues of all those noble men of the past who strove before us, all those statues can be taken down and carted away as well, because they and the principles for which they stood, they mean either nothing or worse than nothing. Well, that approach stands in the sharpest possible contrast to the Bible's teaching on history and our place in it. Does our life's work actually have no meaning, no lasting value? Here in Ecclesiastes 3.9, Solomon asks this very good question. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? In other words, once again, he's asking the same question, just in a different way. What's the point of it all? 
Most of us, of course, spend a great deal of our time, six days a week, working. Some of that work is for pay. A lot of it isn't. But we're working. We're raising children, cooking meals, making beds. We're teaching homeschoolers. We're learning our trades and professions. We are producing our products. We're cleaning out gutters, whatever it might be. We're working. We're taking raw, unfinished materials or situations and making something better out of them. If we're going to see the lasting value in what we do from day to day or over the course of a lifetime, then we've got to toss overboard this devil-may-care, live-for-the-moment approach of the average unbeliever who thinks that history is bunk. We discard that approach because we know from Scripture that he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Just as we saw last week. But more than that, he's given us a better understanding, a biblical understanding of our day-to-day work. And he's done this by setting eternity in our hearts. That's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? He has set eternity in our hearts. By setting eternity in our hearts, clearly distinguishing God's image bearer from the animals, by setting eternity in our hearts, God both glorifies himself and also enables us to see our life's work against the much greater and more glorious backdrop of eternity. There's a much bigger picture in which each one of us has a meaningful role to play. By the grace of God, you and I actually contribute something to eternity for the glory of God. Let's say you're a homeschooling parent and you are frustrated trying for half an hour to get your little one to catch on that the letter P goes this way and the letter Q goes this way. This is P. This is Q. This is P. This is Q. Well, if God has set eternity in your heart, and he has, if God has set eternity in your heart, then you will understand that all this wrangling with your child about P's and Q's is actually an important part of teaching your child her ABC's. And that these 26 distinct letters, different from one another, these 26 distinct letters arranged in the right way, build words 
and that these words, assembled in the right way, build sentences. Sentences that carry meaning. And there is power in meaning. Power in conveying meaning. And if God has set eternity in your hearts, you'll further remember that God himself, in fact, used letters arranged into words, arranged into sentences that carry meaning, that carry, in fact, a distinct message that your child needs to read and understand for himself or herself just as soon as they possibly can. That by the saving work of Jesus Christ on her behalf, she can live forever. Forever. That's the profit in your labor as a homeschooling parent. And you stuck with it through thick and thin, through all of the P's and Q's business, you stuck with it because God set eternity in your heart. You saw your day-to-day work against that glorious backdrop of eternity. Another important part of the education that Christian parents offer their children, beyond things such as the alphabet, is the shorter catechism that asks in question number seven, Some of you will know this. You can say it with me if you wish. But the question is, what are the decrees of God? The answer to that question helps us identify the mystery that's hinted at at the latter clause of verse 11 here. The answer to that question 7 is, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will whereby, for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That God from all eternity decreed the orderly unfolding of history for his own glory, that takes us far beyond merely holding eternity in our hearts. In some very limited creaturely way, our minds are able to grasp at least the concept of eternity. But the rest of verse 11 prepares us for some genuine mystery. Solomon writes, he has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So he set eternity in our hearts so that we might understand the stakes involved in the faithful discharge of our labors. He's also given us to understand that history is the orderly, inexorable unfolding of his eternal decree into the pages of history. And yet, Our comprehension of the glorious work that God is doing in the world is so limited 
that we can scarcely discern what he wrote on the last page of history, let alone what might be on the next page. We don't know. We just don't know. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. It has become something of a theme verse of mine. We can't look into the secret things. The secret things belong to God. As the story of God's wise providence unfolds, we can't predict his next plot twist. We can only trust that he's the one writing the story. In a very elementary way, that explains God's eternal decree, described for us in such places as here, in verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 3, and also our New Testament passage in Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 33, and also the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That is all about the eternal decrees of God in their unfolding through history for his glory and our good. So, the eternal decree, that's what this is about. What we haven't yet covered today is the use that the Holy Spirit speaking through Solomon, the use he makes of this mysterious doctrine. That's the subject of verses 12 to 15. These are turbulent, uncertain days we live in. You will probably agree. The world is in an uproar. The world is in chaos these days. The foundations of civilization are once again being tested. False prophets seem to be everywhere making all kinds of predictions regarding what is next on God's agenda. Beloved, in Christ's name and by Christ's authority, I exhort you, I implore you, dismiss them, disregard them, because the fact remains, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things he's revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may keep all the words of this law. You and I don't know and can't know what the next page of God's unfolding eternal decree may disclose to us. Those things are secret. Those things are known only to God. So, what can we know? We can and should know the things that he's revealed. And what's revealed here for our close attention and benefit are these words of the Holy Spirit spoken through Solomon. I know that there is nothing better for men than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. That's what we can know, and that's what we can do. 
That is the very practical use that we should be making of the biblical doctrine of God's eternal decree. Keep working. Be faithful. And rejoice in your life and the living of it. That's it. That's what life is about. Keep working. Be faithful. Rejoice in your life. It's a gift of God. Dear friends, what the world really needs today, as it's always needed, are calm, steady, resolute Christian souls speaking the truth in Christian love. Joyful, industrious men and women committed day by day to making the world a better place to live. And doing this in the name of Jesus Christ. This ideal articulated here in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 12 and 13. This is fleshed out further for us in such places as 1 Thessalonians 4. Where we find a church deeply troubled by dangers without and doubts within. To those in Thessalonica... And to us, the inspired apostle writes this. We urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Dear ones, that is your humble place and my humble place in history. That's our place in the day-to-day unfolding of God's eternal decree to rejoice and do good in your lifetime. That's the gift of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have been moved already this morning by your greatness. As we've seen it expressed in so many places, it's there on every page of Scripture. And we thank you that you have assigned to each one of us a place, a distinct place in the unfolding of history for your glory. We pray that you would enable us to see our lives and our work our families, our endeavors, whatever they may be, our hours, our days, our weeks, our years, that we might see this in the light of eternity and invest ourselves in those things which are important to you and that you've revealed to us. Thank you that you've provided not only your word to be to us a law, you've provided us a living example in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. So show us more of him and may he be more precious to us and to our children with every passing year. Hear us, we pray. 
Change us according to your great grace and power. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.